This episode is sponsored by the upcoming new release movie, Last Seen Alive. After Will Spann's wife suddenly vanishes at a gas station, his desperate search to find her leads him down a dark path that forces him to run from authorities and take the law into his own hands. The movie stars Gerard Butler and Jamie Alexander and releases in cinemas nationwide on Friday the 17th of June, which is the day of the week movies are always released in South Africa. However, because of the public holiday on the 16th of June, South Africans will be able to catch Last Seen Alive in cinemas on the public holiday, so Thursday already. And in case you're wondering if I've got tickets to give away, yes, yes I do. Three lucky I Live Through This or True Crime South Africa listeners have the chance to win a double set of tickets for you and your bestie to watch Last Seen Alive. The competition will be running from today, the 6th of June, until the 14th on all of our social media platforms. And this time, to qualify for entry, you're going to have to do a bit of sleuthing. Keep your eyes peeled for that competition post, and a huge thank you to Last Seen Alive for supporting I Lived Through This. From that moment on, hell broke loose. I heard the bones already break. I'm going down into the water and I will be drowned. Try to catch me howling at the moon. The stories told on I Lived Through This are told by those who experienced them in good faith. The views expressed by the survivors in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of me, the podcast, or any sponsor of the show. Some of the stories on this podcast may include triggers for some listeners, including descriptions of injuries, sexual violence, abuse, and other triggering topics. Please consider this when listening to this podcast. Africa is one of the most diverse places on earth in terms of its wildlife. Every year, thousands of tourists, both locally and from overseas, come to Africa to witness its beauty and experience game drives and see wild animals in their natural habitat. While watching wild animals from a game ranger's vehicle is a relatively safe way to indulge in this experience. Occasionally, nature and human beings collide in the most terrifying of ways. For 71-year-old Peter Nottenbelt, what was meant to be a relaxing holiday with his family to celebrate his retirement, soon turned into a fight for his life. This is Peter's story. 
So I've, I've called this podcast Surviving and Thriving Through a Crocodile Attack at the Age of 71 and Living with a Consequent Disability. Uh, that's because at the age of 71, I was subjected myself to quite an exciting activity. So I think maybe I must introduce myself first. My name is Peter Nottenbelt, and I'm 75 years old. I'm the middle son of a, of a family of seven children. Uh, my, both parents were teachers in Zimbabwe. I started my working life in 1962 at the age of 16, which I think everybody can hear is very young, certainly in today's terms. And that was at the mine in Zimbabwe. My career in mining then moved to uh, academia after a good number of years in the production mining of the deep level gold mines. And I moved to academia in 1980. 38 years I spent interacting with young people, uh, entering the mining industry through the educational courses that we offered at the University of Johannesburg. So in my life, uh, linked with these young people, and don't forget, I was also young in those days, <laughs> many years ago, many adventures I had, uh, skydiving with them, whitewater canoeing with them, hiking, camping. Uh, I really enjoyed my time with young people. Working life does come to an end, and it was a great pity for me, actually. I properly retired at the beginning of January 2018, and I was so-called set to enjoy a relaxed life. I've never enjoyed really relaxing. I've always wanted to be active. I'm happily married to Lucy, my wife. Uh, we've been married for 44 years. We've got four children. They are all scattered around the world, Australia, New Zealand, and England. Eight grandchildren with not even one left in South Africa. They're all out. So whenever we want to have in family interactions these days, it means largely we must do the traveling. We have strong family connections, both our own family and our siblings and their children, cousins, uh, and so forth. So Peter has come to his retirement. As you heard, he's not exactly pleased about it because he loves his work. But being a family man, he figures it may at least give him more time to spend with his large family and his wife. To ease him into it, his family decides to arrange a big family get-together in South Africa. So we have a family in New Zealand. They arranged a special retirement celebration for me after those many years of working. And they came from New Zealand, all four of them, to introduce me to some areas of the country that I hadn't actually visited, a place in Hootspreet. And then we were going to go on after that to the Kruger Park and then to a place where I did a lot of hiking in the northern uh, Drakensberg. They particularly wanted their, their children to experience the upper berg and camping out in Caves, actually. Caving, you could call it. Anyway, that whole effort was supposed to start on the 6th of January uh, 2018. Just incidentally, we also had tickets for uh, excursion to the United Kingdom to see my daughter there 
in later 2018, and then also in 2018, towards the end of 2018, to go to Australia, New Zealand. Sounds like a pretty packed schedule. Lots of things to look forward to as Peter started his retirement. But none of that would come to pass. Well, on the 6th of January, we arrived at, at the resort. It wasn't really a resort. It was just a guest house, really, uh, in Hootspreit. And we were mel- welcomed by the guest house management. It was very hot. We arrived there at about uh, maybe 12 o'clock or quarter past 12. The ladies and uh, my son-in-law stayed at the accommodation. And my granddaughter and I, Savannah is her name, uh, she was 18 at the time, went for a swim in the rather primitive-looking swimming pool, a little concrete circular tub almost. Uh, and then after that, we were, actually, we went in with all our clothes on, and we thought, oh, well, it's, we're getting nice and cool now. We'll go down to the, to the river to have a little walk along the river. And then while we were going along the river, within the resort area, we decided for no reason at all that we would just cross the river. We had actually made inquiries when we started about the dangers of the area. And they said, no, there's no dangers here. We actually passed a a swing, like one of these uh, ropes that hang from a a tree. And then you can swing a swing from the side into the, into the river and then climb out. And maybe kids do that a lot. I don't know. Well, I can tell you they don't do it now. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, we crossed this river. Uh, the river was about maybe 100 meters. Could it have been a little bit less than 100 meters wide? And it was very shallow. We just walked it. It was really just knee deep. It was flowing but it was not in flood or anything like that. It was quite murky. You couldn't really see the bottom. We got to the other side. Then we decided, oh, we'll just, we'll just go back. And on our way back, uh, Savannah saw a vulture on a sandbank. We decided to go and have a look and see what the, the vulture was up to there on the sandbank. So we, we made our way to the sandbank. Uh, by that time, the vulture had flown off. Uh, Savannah got onto the uh, onto the sandbank, and I walked around it a little bit, just going into the front of it where it got a little bit deeper. And so, as I was walking down there, it was sandy at the bottom, even though you couldn't see the bottom. It got deeper and deeper, and my right leg stood on something very foreign, and uh, I recognised it before it actually moved. I recognised it as the back of a crocodile. Peter has just stepped on a crocodile. In the instant it happens, he recognises what it is, but there's no time to react. As soon as a thought enters his mind, the crocodile reacts. As you can imagine, from that moment on, hell broke loose. The crocodile swung around, took hold of my lower right leg. I heard the bones already break and it was throwing me from side to side. I had glasses, I wear glasses, and the glasses went flying, of course, and a a hat to which there is another whole story 
which I, I felt quite possessive about. I still feel a, a great loss, actually, that my hat got lost as well. It sounds a bit funny now, circumstances, but it, it had a sort of a sentimental value attached to it. So anyway, you know, I was being thrown from one side to the other. Savannah was on the sandbank. She was in a state of panic. The family had already come down and watched, watched me in the river. So they were on the side and I was calling for help. Actually, it was a bit of a joke as well that my daughter shouted, hey, hey uh, you know, you mustn't joke like that, that, uh, that you know, I'm being attacked by a crocodile. They thought for the, at the start that I was just uh, playing the fool, which I sometimes do. I don't blame them for that. But the response, I think, made them realize that uh, this was no play uh, activity. Can you just imagine the horror of that moment for Peter's family, watching, completely helpless, as he was tossed around by this crocodile. It's one thing if your loved one is being attacked by something you can see, maybe something you can take aim at and try to distract. But this predator was completely invisible to everyone. There was no way that they could even enter the water to try and help or they would risk being attacked themselves. The croc adjusted its grip on my leg. Uh, again, for the second time now, I heard the uh, bones breaking. Uh, since that time, of course, I've uh, taken a good look at the x-rays, and you can see the strength of that crocodile bite. It's just, uh, it's just unbelievable. It, it smashes bone just like it's a, a toothpick. I actually shouted to Savannah, she must, she, must, she must get out, she must get out. Of course, it's, it's easy for me to say that now, get out. But she must have been petrified because, uh, uh, you know, there was I, not far from her, fighting with this crocodile. The crocodile was evidently a, a three-meter-odd length, which is not an enormous crocodile, but it's certainly one that you can't play with. And I discovered that. Savannah actually rushed through the water and some people uh, helped her out onto the bank. Well, you know, I sort of now uh, start to tell the story as if it's a, a, a boxing match. Uh, you know, I'm in the ring uh, and I've got the crocodile as an opponent. So round one was definitely a, a round that the crocodile won. Round two. Well, you know, this is the, the, the session where I'm fighting the crocodile. I tried to resist in any way. At one stage, I was trying to open its, its jaws. And some rangers had uh, come up from the, the resort slight, slightly downstream. Uh, and they just said, they shouted, don't even try to open the, the crocodile's jaws. It will, it's impossible. The Nile crocodile is the most common species of crocodile found in South Africa. The average three-meter-long Nile crocodile will weigh between 200 and 400 kilograms and snaps its jaws shut with a bite force of 3,700 pounds per square inch. It has the strongest jaws of any creature on planet Earth. Well, at least the ones whose bite force has been measured. In comparison, 
a lion's bite force is just 650 psi. The reason that the rangers are telling Peter not to bother trying to open the animal's mouth is because almost all of its muscle strength is in use when its mouth is closed. So you're essentially trying to shift 3,700 pounds per square inch with your bare hands. It's not going to happen. Interestingly, the muscles a crocodile uses to open its mouth are extremely weak. So that's why you often see people wrangling crocs and just keeping their mouth shut with a piece of duct tape. You could essentially hold a croc's mouth closed with your hands. Although I don't suggest it, because one slip and you'll end up with those jaws closing around your hand. And so it was that Peter, 71 at the time, found himself in the crocodile's domain, with those crushing jaws clamped around his leg. I was being thrown from one side to another. Uh, my one good leg, the, my left leg, you know, it's, it's still sh quite shallow water. So I was able every now and again to get my, my leg onto the ground and sort of bring it back, bring the crocodile back. But then it would do a, a movement and I would be, be thrown uh, you know, to the side again. The rangers uh, had come up with uh, firearms. They had a rifle each. Uh, there were altogether uh, three people who came up, a lady and two uh, male rangers. And the male rangers had uh, these rifles and they proceeded to start firing into the water quite scary. And I thought these bullets, I saw these, I heard the sound and I saw these bullets going, <laughs> going into the water, not too distant from me. Clearly they, they couldn't shoot direct at the crocodile because, you know, I, I was, uh, they'd have to be a very good shot and there couldn't be a pity of missing and perhaps hitting me. So the idea that they obviously had, and they, they spoke to, about it afterwards, they would be, they shot just by the tail of the crocodile and ahead of us as we were in the water. They had, I think, five rounds each, and then the shot stopped. They had run out of bullets. And although it's not clear to me at this stage, even now, how this might have happened, uh, I've got major injuries on my chest. I'm believing that at some stage, my torso must have been in the jaws of the uh, crocodile. At this point, Peter's dogs became very unhappy that their dad was retelling his story about his argument with the giant lizard and complained loudly for several minutes. We waited, and then Peter picked the story back up. Peter tells me that in addition to the injury he sustained to his leg, he also had a broken sternum. When the sternum bone broke, it pushed up against his heart muscle. He had six broken ribs, two of which had punctured his right lung. He had a dislocated collarbone. His scapula, or shoulder bone, was also broken. He also had multiple puncture wounds on his chest. He was missing a large chunk of flesh. Now, although Peter can recount his time in the water with the crocodile, he doesn't remember ever having his torso in the jaws of the crocodile. It had to have happened, 
because that's the only way those injuries could have occurred. But Peter knows nothing about it. I can only think that perhaps that moment was simply too horrific to remember. Your brain will often protect you from these memories. And to be honest, I don't know if I would want to remember having my chest in the jaws of a crocodile. Back to Peter and the croc in the river. Anyway, in the river, you know, at that stage I'd lost a lot of blood and uh, I had basically reconciled with myself that, you know, this was the end that I had to endure. So I then relaxed. The, the people on the bank afterwards, they said, they suddenly saw me just relax. And I think that's maybe one of the things that sort of maybe startled the crocodile or something, I don't know. But anyway, during this, this time, at that relaxed stage, I decided I have to do something to save myself. And instead of fighting it, hold myself up and all that, uh, I found my hands around the crocodile's head with my thumbs pushing into, into this beast's eyes. And the rest of my body was like totally relaxed. It was just relaxed. All of this had taken about maybe maybe 10 minutes or 12 minutes. It sounds like a long time. I don't know whether it was shorter or longer. Uh, but at this stage, after about, I'm estimating 12 minutes or, or so, the crocodiles swam out into, into the deeper part of the river. And I'm busy pushing my thumbs into its, into its eyes. So it didn't have sight, that's for sure. And then all of a sudden, about maybe another two minutes or something like that, all of a sudden, it stopped in the river. Now, I don't know whether it was because it didn't know where it was going or whether it was itself tired, but it just stopped. And I nearly, I nearly, I remember this clearly, saying, oh, thank goodness, I'm, I'm safe now. And then wanting to take my my thumbs out of its eyes. And then I said, I said to myself, no, no, this is the, the wrong decision. I must give my last because it's in the next minute or 10 seconds or whatever it is, I'm going down into the water and I will be drowned. Peter is not wrong. This is typical crocodile behavior. He was most definitely attempting to drag Peter out to the deeper water to drown him. Crocodiles also engage in death rolls, which is when they spin their prey in a rolling motion in the water to disorientate them. They will also do this after the prey is deceased, to break the body apart so that they can devour it more easily. But Peter didn't think that day was a good day to become croc lunch, and he wasn't going down without a fight. Peter ended up digging his fingers into that crocodile's eyes so hard that he snapped both his wrists. So I dug deeper in, into its eyes with my, my thumbs. I, I think my wrists, because both of my wrists were also broken, and I'm believing now that it was because of the strength 
that was all the strength that I could possibly muster was digging into its eyes. Well, for whatever reason, after a few moments of stillness, that crocodile decided, no, this prey of is uh, not the one he wants right now. And he shook his head and he threw me. And I reckon I traveled through the air. <laughs> it might be a bit of an exaggeration, I suppose. But it certainly felt like I, I went through the air at least a meter away from it. And then I said, oh, thank God. But of course, you know, th that wasn't the end because the crocodile ob obviously able to see. And I heard a splash and I saw one of the, the rangers and I have his name, which I am very proud to add to my story. His name is Paul Slyer, and he's from a, uh, the downstream lodge where we were going to be resident. Uh, so his lodge is the Maningi Lodge uh, on the banks of the Crocodile River. He had rushed into the water, remembering that it's, it was quite shallow. He made his way to where I was in the water because I, I had no strength. I'd lost a lot of blood. If he had left me there, I think the crocodile would be back. And he did come back. And I'm using the male agenda for the crocodile. I don't know whether he was male or female, but whatever he was, he was strong enough. Uh, he literally saved my life. He, he, he came, he jumped into the water. He pulled me out of the water. And, uh, you know, I just have to say he was my lifesaver and there are many people who saved my life, actually, all the way through this whole event. But I think uh, he was the first one. If it hadn't been for him, you know, I would have found my grave in that water. Peter says that Paul was the first person to play a role in saving his life. But I think he's being modest here. Peter himself was the first person to play a role in saving his own life. When he sunk his fingers into that croc's eyes, snapping his own wrists in the process. And this was clearly not a defense mechanism the croc was used to getting from Buck or his other usual prey. The reptile decided that this particular meal was not worth the trouble it was causing him. So Peter is out of the water, but his battle for life is now only beginning. So that round of the boxing match went to me, I think, me and the crocodile. So, you know, that was the end of, the, uh, of that particular boxing match, you could call it. And I started sort of another one in some way or other, uh, which I now call uh, my survival process. So now I'm on the, on the water's edge, on the side of the river. Uh, the water just keeps on flowing as if nothing had happened. The uh, crocodile, maybe he came around. They, they did say he, he poked his head out again, uh, but he just disappeared down the river looking for a better a supper, perhaps, or a, something more cooperative. So the rangers, the other person was a lady who had quite good first aid knowledge. And the rangers also, uh, you know, they could see this. In, uh, my injuries were almost certainly going to be fatal if they were not immediately treated. What I remember quite, just as I was being taken out, 
uh, they said, we must find a tourniquet to put it around my leg. Uh, they put this tourniquet around my leg. I must tell you that during this time, and actually for the whole time, I did not have any sensation of severe pain. Discomfort, yes, but pain, no. I didn't scream out in pain, ah, you know, my leg or my shoulder or my, my, my chest or something like that. I know I had difficulty breathing and I know I was extremely weak. I was just lying there prone on the bank under a tree at that stage. Anyway, uh, you know, somebody had already um, made arrangements to call an ambulance, but it was a really remote area. An ambulance would have to come from Zanin. So it was quite a way, and it took more than an hour and a half before the ambulance arrived. A um, paramedic arrived a little bit before the ambulance and, of course, then took over charge of the activities to try and uh, maintain my life, really. I must tell you that this concept of Peter having experienced absolutely no pain, considering his extensive injuries, is absolutely fascinating to me. I've often heard stories about people getting attacked by sharks, for instance, and having no idea that their leg has been completely severed until they try to stand up on it and find it's no longer there. And there's a pretty simple but entirely amazing reason for this. Hormones. Peter was just in the most basic fight for survival. In fact, he was in the type of fight for survival against a wild animal intent on eating him that our bodies are actually designed for. Our fight or flight response is an evolutionary throwback to the days when we did have encounters with wild animals on a regular basis. When our body senses that we're in danger, it triggers a biochemical response in which hormones like adrenaline and endorphins flood your bloodstream. This tells your body that all non-essential functions need to be shut off so that your blood supply can focus on the muscles and the brain those things that are going to help you get out of the situation alive. Endorphins are your body's natural painkillers and can partially or even completely mask severe pain so that your brain does not have to deal with processing injury or a response to pain. Essentially, your body decides you do not have the time or energy to feel pain right now. We'll deal with that later. This phenomenon often occurs after car accidents as well, and that's why you'll only really start to feel things like whiplash or other injuries several days after an accident. This is what was happening to Peter. Although he'd never been in a similar situation in his life, his brain instinctively knew what it needed to do to get him through that. If he had actually felt the pain of his snapped wrists, when he was poking his fingers into the crocodile's eyes, there's no way he would have been able to override that and continue doing it long enough to save his own life. Zanin is 124 kilometers from Hutzbreit. So while a paramedic tried to stabilize him, they waited for the ambulance. His family gathered around his broken body, completely shocked at the turn that their holiday had just taken. 
so I lay in the in the under the tree and I was just lying there. I was being given reassurances from the family that were around my daughter. My even my granddaughter was uh, holding a, a, a wad over my chest where there was uh, a blood coming from a big puncture wound on my chest. The paramedic arrived. Uh, he stabilized me, put me on a, a spinal board when the ambulance arrived. But I just did whatever, whatever I was told. Uh, into the ambulance, I must say, the ambulance was quite rudimentary, if I could use that term. It did not have all the facilities. But there were two lovely um, uh, nurses on it. And they uh, tried to, to help me, you know, kept on reassuring me. But as we uh, traveled in this um, ambulance, I must say it was really rough. <laughs> it bounced up and down on the roads. And one time I remember that it couldn't make, make it up a hill. Of course, it was all dirt roads. So, it, you know, it was maybe I'm maligning them unjustly. It was really quite a rough ride. Uh, at the beginning, I was accompanied by Lucy. And funnily enough, my son, Graham, who had actually been at, a, um, at the Kruger Park prior to, to they had not arrived even at the, um, at the resort. And uh, he is actually an anaesthetist uh, in New Zealand. And he had, by coincidence, the, the ambulance had had to stop at a, quite a remote garage to fill up with petrol. It didn't have enough petrol to get us to, uh, uh, to Polokwane uh, because, of course, we were rerouted uh, from, from going back to Zanin, which would have been the closer, uh, closer hospital. But they saw the, the, the level of injuries would not have been able to be treated there. So they routed us to Polokwane. At the garage where we stopped, Graham saw the ambulance there and decided to go and just inquire whether you know, whether that was perhaps us and only to find it was us. And uh, um, then he joined me in the ambulance. They didn't give me painkillers or morphine or anything. And I said to them, I'm not, I'm actually not in pain. I don't feel like I, maybe I, I, I should have felt much more pain, but I was not in pain. And I've actually put it all down to uh, and my so-called positive uh, attitude and approach to the fact that the injury was to me and not to my granddaughter, Savannah, you know, who was 18 at the time. And, you know, I doubt she would have, have survived it. And also, if she had survived it, you know, maybe like me, you know, having, uh, having lost a leg now and been a bit damaged from it. I, you know, I don't think I could have lived with myself with that. So th maybe I, it was that, or maybe it was just my sort of physiology that made me virtually painless. Eventually arrived at uh, the hospital in Polokwane. My, my daughter had gone ahead and, you know, completed all the paperwork and they expected me. And then after a few seconds, of my arrival, I then was completely unconscious. As soon as he's wheeled into the hospital, and perhaps his brain realises, okay, I can clock out now, Peter has no memory from that point. He would remain in a semi-sedated coma-like state 
for 14 days before regaining consciousness. Everything he tells us about what happened while he was unconscious is pieced together from what he was told after he woke up. I was evidently stabilized. I have got O negative blood. I believe from my son's report to me that the hospital had, they had no O negative blood. And so I had to be given some O positive blood, but you can only, I can only absorb a certain amount of that. So that made me again, very weak and, and even more critical. They attempted to scrub all my wounds. You know, crocodiles are renowned for their bacterial load. And, uh, <laughs> and they also attempted to reset my leg. And I know that only uh, by an, an x-ray that I had. I mean, I'd seen the bone sticking out of, out of my lower leg multiple you know, like you, you take a chicken bone and you break it and then you, you, you crush it with a, with, a, with a hammer or something like that. Uh, but I think uh, at, at some stage or other, they decided, because of lots of factors, that the facilities, the expertise, the blood, whatever it was at the Polokwane Hospital was not adequate to deal with this. And so a helicopter had been arranged to fly from Johannesburg to, um, to Polokwane to pick me up. And sure enough, I landed it at the Mill Park Hospital in Johannesburg uh, at about two o'clock in the morning. I was treated uh, as an extremely critical case, and I have no doubt about that. I, I spoke to the um, helicopter crew. I went to thank them, actually, for, again, being a part of the, the life-saving process. And they said they used every life support system that they could on the helicopter. Now, remembering that that was, you know, the, the, the hospital had done likewise, I guess. So, you know, I was, I was, uh, I think every, all of them had th thought that I wouldn't be coming through on this. I had uh, quite severe internal bleeding. This is what I've understood. And the other injuries as well, uh, those injuries required 13 separate surgeries during those 14 days. The first one, funnily enough, ended up as being one that caused quite major uh, secondary problems. Uh, which I'll talk to uh, talk to you about. That that was the internal bleeding, where they had to do a I think it's called a laparotomy, where they look for the internal bleeding through inspecting your uh, intestines. During that time, uh, my kidneys failed, the liver failed, my heart had to be shocked to to stabilize it and restart it. I guess I had to have a lung drainage. Uh, and I was already filled with septicemia. During this time, Peter's body was failing. After he regained consciousness, he was told that his family had been prepared for a very poor prognosis. Doctors did everything they could, 
but his injuries were so numerous and his initial blood loss so severely impacted his body that there was really very little chance he would survive. My family, when they came and visited me, which I didn't even know they were, were visiting me because, of course, it was in intensive care, they said as they walked in the intensive care ward, they could smell rotting flesh because it was really as bad as they, they said. They couldn't recognize me because I was, they called me the Michelin man because I was so swollen up. You don't know me, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm quite slender. I don't, but they said they couldn't believe me. I was, I was just like a Michelin man, swollen everywhere. And this comes about evidently uh, as, a, as a result of septicemia. During that time, there was a decision, and it was uh, sort of approved, I guess, in inverted commas, by, uh, by, by my wife and, of course, Graham, who had been uh, there all the time. So anyway, we were very, she was very reassured by that. And uh, then the decision was made to, to amputate the leg. If you haven't listened to the very first episode of this podcast series, Shan Survived a Deadly Mongoose Bite, I suggest you do so after this. I included a lot of information about sepsis in that episode, which I think is important to understand. For Peter, his sepsis was likely coming from the bacteria on the teeth of the crocodile. According to an article by a professor at Australia's James Cook University entitled if a croc bite doesn't get you, the infection will. Most people who initially survive crocodile bites will eventually succumb to the infection that comes from the bacteria in their mouth. This huge load of bacteria comes from the intestines of the prey they eat, as well as the water they live in, and considering Peter had gone without antibiotics for almost seven hours from the time of his attack, there was almost no doubt that an infection was already developing in his bloodstream by the time they wheeled him into the first hospital in Polokwane. It is this infection which would have resulted in the sepsis. Also in Shan's episode, she had to deal with the amputation of her limbs, and she was informed that this was going to happen when she awoke from her coma. And although it's devastating either way, Peter didn't have the opportunity to come to terms with his amputation beforehand, as it had to be done while he was still unconscious. So he would wake up to an amputated leg. But this was literally a life-saving decision. As soon as Peter's leg was amputated, his condition began to improve. As had been the case with Shan, Peter's leg had been killing him slowly, and removing it vastly increased his chances of survival. Peter's daughter had been taking daily notes of his condition and the medical events he'd been experiencing in a hardcover book, and on day six, she noted that on that day, they received the first positive words from doctors. Uh, as the specialist surgeon, under whose care I was, said that, yes, you know, I think we'll pull him through. I think we'll pull him through. I, I don't know what, what happened after that, but the numbers improved. And 14 days after the event, I, uh, I woke up. 
family were all around my bed. They had actually brought me out of the coma. This coma that I was in was a medically induced coma. So I didn't feel anything. I didn't, I'd had some hallucinations during the time, which I won't bother uh, telling you about. These hallucinations that Peter refers to are actually mentioned quite often by people who've been in, in an induced coma. Because your brain is still able to take in sounds and touch, medical professionals believe that these hallucinations are your brain's way of trying to make sense of your condition. Your brain has not put you into that coma, so it's essentially fighting against being unconscious while the medication keeps you in that state. Many people have reported being very disturbed by these hallucinations and vivid nightmares for years after their medical incidents. As the universe does, at this point in the call, it decided to give us a bit of an added bonus to the interview. As Peter was talking, I heard the ringtone for Skype going off in the background on his end. It was Savannah, his granddaughter who'd been with him on the day he was attacked. Now, she didn't know that Peter was doing this interview with me, and it was complete coincidence that she called at that moment. So, essentially, I'm hearing her audio through Peter's mic, and it sounded a bit odd, but I thought it was a pretty cool moment. So, Savannah, she's in Australia at the moment, in Perth. I'm just telling my story, our story, uh, to be put onto a podcast. Oh, wow. That's so, amazing. So uh, maybe you can just say where you are and what, what you're doing at the moment, Savannah. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I live in Perth, Australia. And after being in South Africa for as long as I had been, I'm now started in Australia and I'm doing a course in early childhood education and care. And I'm working in the early childhood sector as well. Thank you, Savannah. And maybe you could just just relate a little bit if it's not too much for you. Or do you not want to do that? No, no, fine, fine. Uh, can, can you tell us something about your experience, uh, you know, uh, over the, the crocodile incident? I mean, do you, do you feel that you were traumatized by this event? Yes. <laughs> And I would, I would say that the first year, I wasn't terrible. I mean, obviously right after the event, I was, I was quite affected. But, you know, I sort of got over it. And it was only about a year later that the PTSD actually started. And, you know, it, it was quite a, like it was two years of sort of recovery from the PTSD. But I'm, I'm great now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Savannah. That's what we wanted to hear. Uh, and, the, and the big thing is, you're great now. Yes, exactly. And I mean, it, yes, it was, it was a horrible experience, but I wouldn't be where I am today without it. Like, I wouldn't be living with my partner, Luke, and I wouldn't be in Australia, and I wouldn't be doing a job that I would never have even imagined myself doing. So... It's, it's taken me on a completely different path in my life and in a weird way, I'm grateful for that. 
thank you, Savannah. That's that's exactly. But uh, you know, the, the big thing is every little incident in your life directs you onto a new path. And and some of exactly. yes, and some of them, you know, are are very positive. For me, it's a most peculiar thing to say. I don't know what I would have been doing with my retirement had it not been for this this incident. It has actually opened doors for me that I could not have ever dreamt of. It's brought our our families, you know, much closer together and just my own personal life, you know, even our our family life here in, in our home here, you know, I think so many things have changed for the positive. Things could have been very different. I could have, for example, been in a wheelchair now. You know, I'm not in a wheelchair. I can summarize it maybe by saying, one, I've never been happier. I've never been fitter. And I've never been stronger. And I'm talking about mentally and physically. I should be regretting somehow losing my leg, uh, but I don't. I don't. It's, it's, it's made such a positive impact in, in other ways. How cool was that chat with Savannah? And I think it was absolutely vital to hear from her too, because she raised such important points, especially around PTSD. But then on a more positive note, how she'd taken that and made it such a positive thing in her life. As she said, she's now doing things she never could have imagined because of what she and her grandfather experienced. And for Peter's part, he too can now see how this event has actually changed his life for the better, although he likely would never have thought that when he was first coming to terms with having lost his leg and all the recovery that came with the attack. I also can't help but smile at the relationship between these two. It really is very beautiful. And I have no doubt that Savannah knows how lucky she is to have this relationship with a grandparent like Peter. So with that sidebar done, we go back to Peter waking up in the hospital. He says that he remembers the moment when he first saw his entire family from near and far, gathered around his hospital bed. And it felt a bit of an ominous sight. Very quickly, you know, I was able to communicate through a blinking, like blink at them or try and muster up a smile. Uh, you know, I had a um, tracheotomy or whatever they call it. Uh, so I was not able to, to speak in any way. I could just just make uh, facial expressions, really. We got excellent treatment in the ICU for a total of 44 days. I had daily visits from my family. Shame, I, I, you know, I look back on it now and I think, you know, Mill Park is a long way from where we, where we live. And there were visits in the morning and visits in the evening. Of course, there were limited numbers of people that could visit. And my daughter, uh, my daughter Linda, uh, the mother of Savannah, she was quite strict with outside visitors at, at that stage. So she restricted friends and 
uh, even students, they all wanted to come and visit me. They sent me lovely messages. One a colleague, one I could say ex-colleague because I was retired, of mine um, in the administration at the University of Johannesburg, her name is Kensani. She went on a fast, can you believe it, uh, for 14 days in, in an attempt to ask God to make me uh, survive. During that time, I lost uh, 20 kilograms. I wasn't very weighty at the, at the beginning. And of course, I lost a leg. I've been told that that has, uh, weight, weighs about four kilograms. But the eating was just extremely difficult. My throat had been injured by all these pipes and things. Uh, so in the, in the ICU, there was this trachea that I, I had, which would, would uh, allowed me eventually to, to speak through it. That was a, a major sort of breakthrough for me. You know, I was just lying there and I had not been able to communicate. They brought me um, a writing pad, but, you know, I was so shaky that I could not write anything. They brought me an iPad where, where they just, I wanted to type in something, but I, my hands wouldn't work. You know, they, they wouldn't, wouldn't do it. So eventually when I got this ability to say something like, I love you, it, it, it came out. That, like those were the first words that I said. I think I, was, I, I spoke to my wife. I love you. And it, it was, it, but I could feel elated because it marked like a massive uh, step in, in um, recovery. I thought I would never be able to speak again. You know, I didn't know what was all the things that were wrong. And it is these small things that we so often take for granted. The simple ability to be able to say, I love you. How often do we just matter off those words as we run out the door, late for work, late to drop the kids off with a quick peck on the cheek? Peter thought he may never be able to say those words again. And it was in that moment that he realized the true value of them. Then I slowly improved. Up until then, I, somebody came and did my teeth and shaved me. Now I started to do my teeth myself. And then I was able to shave myself a little bit. And then eventually they helped me out into a wheelchair. And then eventually get onto some crutches. Uh, just at the point of getting onto the crutches, they put me into the, um, the general ward. I must say, in the ICU, the care was, I, I cannot explain it, but other than it was number one. It was stupendous. Uh, then I went into the private ward, and uh, for the first time, I was able to, to use a cell phone. So my, my daughter, Linda, she bought me a new cell phone. Was and I was very keen to send out messages and to read the messages that had been just shown to me before. Now, on my own phone, I can see these messages. Well, I want to tell you both phones were stolen that night. <laughs> I was in a private ward, I actually went out in the morning on a wheelchair. I got myself into the wheelchair, I rode myself out into the passage. Uh, to look at the sunrise. 
it would have been the first sunrise I'd actually seen for those all those days. I stayed out there for about an hour while I watched the sunrise. It was from about five o'clock in the morning. And then I went back and I said, oh, I'll just do a few of these things with the phones. Where did I put those phones? I thought I'd put them in the, in the drawer here. And then I realized <laughs> they'd, they'd been nicked. I think that this is a common thread that weaves itself through all of the stories we hear on this podcast. As much as people are seeing the very best of humanity in these situations, they are also often seeing the very worst, too. I don't know what kind of human being steals from a 70-odd-year-old man who's just had his leg amputated and survived a crocodile attack. But whatever kind of person that is, I hope those phones burned holes in their pockets. I continued to get better. I had uh, quality physio, uh, physio uh, therapists, And, of course, I continued to have uh, visits uh, from family. So uh, on day 53, I was released from the Mill Park Hospital to go to a rehab clinic. We had selected the Moorhill Clinic in Benoni because it was close to where we lived and it had quite good reputation. I, I had in a great service from the Moorhill Clinic, I must say, and I developed quite a friendship with the, um, uh, with the staff there. Uh, incidentally, I went back to them. Uh, they phoned me the other day to come and talk to another amputee, uh, which I've done quite, quite a lot of, you know, as a sort of a, sort of a payback. Not, not because it's a, a burden to me at all. I love it. I love telling my story. I love uh, trying to motivate. This lady had lost, uh, lost a leg. And uh, they wanted me to go and, sp- and, and speak to her. And then it was lovely to go there. And virtually all of them were all just thrilled to see me. And uh, it was just, uh, just too lovely for words. And this despite all these COVID uh, restrictions and so on, you know. So two weeks later, I uh, came back home. I had a lovely meal on that Sunday. But unfortunately, I ate it too fast. And this created quite a big medical problem further on. Peter was still in the rehab facility and being allowed to go home on Sundays when he indulged a little too much on his wife's cooking. And because his body wasn't used to processing so much food at once, it caused a bowel obstruction. He had to have another op for this. And today has to limit his food intake to ensure it doesn't happen again. 76 days after Peter had stepped on something in that river and realized it was a crocodile head, he was finally released from the rehab facility and allowed to return home permanently. Today, Peter does quite a bit of public speaking. He gives talks at old age homes, schools, and helps to counsel those who've recently become amputees. It would be quite a process for Peter to get used to his prosthesis and there were a lot of firsts for him during that time. Just walking through a shopping centre for the first time unassisted was huge. Then he had to figure out how to drive. He tells me that the feeling of freedom and independence that coursed through him when he was first able to drive again was incredible. I got, I got back into trying to play my guitar. Oh, 
this wrist wouldn't do anything. You know, this it's a, it was really it was just like like stiff and, and 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 I thought, oh, I'll never I'll never play the guitar again. But that that has also been proved wrong. Quite good strides on it. I decided I'd learn to play the piano, and wow, the piano came on just beautifully. Well, I wouldn't say I'm not a, a, a concert pianist by any means. <laughs> no, but uh, but I have. I've uh, my son had given me when they moved to Australia. They gave me a piano that I'd sort of tinkered with a little bit, but but never made any progress with. But after my my recovery. I decided I'm doing it. I'm going to, re- uh, this was my retirement wish before this incident. And uh, I said, I'm going to carry on with, with the guitar. I'm going to you know, make, a, make progress with the piano. And I must tell you, it's worked out quite well. So, so uh, these are all things that uh, have, I think, excited my life. I, I joined my stairs project back at the university. I joined them where I climbed seven stories using crutches, and I hadn't actually climbed one stair with it with it before. So I just hobbled along, and I went up. I, I did have a little. Of course, they were all surrounding me, and I did have a little bit of a, a wobble, and I was caught caught, you know, where I could have had a fall, but I persevered up. Just as I got onto the onto the seventh floor, but then of course I, got, I had a large amount of cheers uh, from the the students that were participating in this, which was about three hundred students. The stairs project that Peter refers to is a project at the University of Johannesburg, which encourages students and staff members to walk more and rely less on elevators. It had been running at the university for many years and Peter had been a part of it when he worked there. I've linked a video to this moment where Peter climbed the stairs on his crutches in the show notes, and I strongly recommend you watch it. I also really loved how he explained that every time he stumbled, he was caught. Because really, isn't that just what all of us need in life? Someone standing behind us, ready to catch us if we fall. So anyway, uh, I got my prosthesis. Uh, and then I started to learn to walk on it. I started going to the gym. I started swimming. I did a park run, uh, not a park run, of course, a, a park park walk. I came stone last. They all waited for me to, to finish, and they gave me a nice big cheer at the end, you know. <laughs> I, uh, I, ended, I, I started to mow the lawn. And then all of this time, of course, you know, uh, I've, I've been supported by Lucy. And Lucy is my wife, who I don't think uh, has been given really enough credit for her patience with me and, uh, and support of me over all this time. You know, it's just everything is, is supportive. So it's just, it's just so fantastic to be married to such a wonderful woman. Those uh, are the sorts of things that have sort of stimulated my recovery. And what I could say is my miraculous recovery. It's not just 
the things I'm mentioning. It's the medical support. It's the messages. It's the prayers. You know, unfortunately, it's just I, I don't know how I've deserved all of this. I, I really don't. But anyway, um, I'm hoping that my way of life now is sort of paying back in some way or other. I have a little motto in myself and that I, I use, make every heartbeat count and, and in the service of humanity. So that's what I'm, I'm trying to do with my life. I would tell Peter that many of the people I speak with express a similar sentiment. Why me? And not, why did this happen to me? But why was I able to survive this? What made me so special that I could live through this experience and gain such amazing insights and benefits from it when so many others don't? And when I gave him my answer, he insisted that I include it in the podcast. I asked him, why not you? Why wouldn't you be the person that survived this? We so often don't see things in ourselves until we're forced to. And an experience like this brings out all of the attributes you never knew you had. And it's as those very attributes that when applied to survival, also go on to make that experience a valuable lesson for everyone to learn from. The person that survives goes on to change others' lives. And if Peter's experience has benefited just one other person, and we already know it's benefited many, then that, sir, is why you. I told Peter that I think everyone deserves the recovery in life he's living, but some are more capable of grasping it at the time it happens to them than others. And really, he kind of made his own miracle, because he fought back. And if you're not yet thoroughly amazed by Peter, he shared a bit of what his daily routine is like now with me. My routine, my current routine, of course, it's developed over these, well, it's almost four years to the day. So these days, now, I, don't, I hope you won't think that this is showing off, but I, I, I feel I can, I, I've a lot to be proud of a lot to give credit to for other people, but also, you know, to myself. Uh, I, I wake up early. For that matter, I go to bed early. But anyway, I wake up early. Like, like this morning, it's just a typical, a typical day. This morning, I woke up at quarter to three. I do home exercise. I start my exercises by three o'clock. This morning, I started a little bit before that. And I don't use an alarm clock. I, I, I wake up as a routine. I want, to, I want to live and be awake for as many of my heartbeats as I possibly can. And I start my home exercises. I do those. I used to go to the, to the gym. Before COVID, I used to go to the gym. But I can't go to the gym now. I'm too scared of this COVID for the moment, at least. Home exercises for three hours till six o'clock. And I do, I've got my own very rudimentary, I must say, weights for a 75-year-old. I think I'm strong. 
I think I'm fit, and I'll tell you why that is, because I go to the swimming pool at the gym, but I couldn't swim half a length when I started. I've got a video of my start. It's pathetic. But it wasn't six months, and I swam the the mid-mile mile, which was something that I was extremely – I won't try it again now, and I was really – I was more than tired. I could use another word. I did it. I did that in February. Oh, that was actually a year after the incident. That's right. It's a year after the incident. I swim for two hours, a minimum of a mile, five days a week. I have, I have two rest days. So I eat a, a, a light and simple breakfast. I bake, bre- I bake bread every two or three days to have nice fresh bread. I try and do something useful every day, you know, like mow the lawn or fix a drawer. I keep a diary. Uh, my uh, sister from New Zealand, who is a, a doctor, when she was came to visit us, she suggested I keep a, a mood diary. Now, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, I'm not a great psychological uh, reactant, but I must tell you, I have kept it now for well, three and a half years. And every day I write down my mood. And it's, it's on an evaluation of one to five. And in the early days, those early days after about six months or after the incident, uh, um, I used to have days of quite severe downs. You know, I, I might have... Uh, had a migraine, I might have tripped, I might have uh, not been able to do something, my piano playing might have been uh, been terrible, or whatever the, the thing was. And I would have had days where I write there, ah, I don't think I'll ever make it, I don't know why I'm doing this, you know, all the negative things. But uh, uh, writing them down stimulated me to, um, to get over it in a way, to, to move on not to dwell on it. And so many, many of those uh, uh, days in the early times used to be evaluated as a one or a two or a three, or maybe if I achieved something, like I drove around the, the circle. Hooray, I've done it. I might say, you know, I'll give myself a four for that day because I'd achieved something, even though things might, other things might not have been it been great. Well, I can tell you now, for the last, I would say, two years, I think I don't think I've had a two. I don't think I don't think I've had more than 10 threes, maybe 30, 30 or maybe 50 fours. But if I have to look in the last month or last three months, I would say I might have had one four. So every day is a five out of five. And many of my days, many of my days are five pluses or even five plus plus. And for people who, who perhaps listen to this podcast 
don't think that that you know it's going to be great. <laughs> it's not. There's going to be really tough days, but uh, you know this might help just you know look to the future rather than you know dwell on the on the the, the severity of the day. It sort of writes it off. It says it's done. Try again the next day for a better day. Try again tomorrow for a better day. Thanks, Peter. Peter also walks his dogs every day, plays piano, enjoys doing Sudoku. He says his only complaint is that his wife's cooking is far too good, and because of his bowel issues, he has to limit his food intake, which is a serious challenge to his self-discipline. And Peter had some parting words for us. Lessons he's taken from his journey and his life. I've made some comments that I'd like to just share with anybody who listens to this podcast. Uh, and I've called, called it enlightenment. Things that have um, uh, enlightened me or inspired me to do things, things that I've realized as a result of this uh, accident. Strength is derived by consistent practice of difficulty. So what I do is I pick the difficult route so that at the top of the mountain, you get a view that is different to the one that is the people who use the cable car have. I believe that strength is required to, to react to adversity. And you don't get it by taking the easy route. I think the other thing that, that uh, I realized in, in my recovery is, uh, and I read again, care for others and show it. It will be returned to you 10 times. A lot of people did that for me. And I like to think that they got happiness out of showing their care for me. The next thing is respect and tolerance. I know that there are plenty other people in this world who have gone through the same thing as me. Know that you're not the only pebble on the beach. Everyone has something to offer in the world. So I say, let them do it. Let them, let them do the things that they want to offer. Give them the opportunity to show it. But then you must recognize it. Appreciate what you have and what you are given. I think my biggest gift has been my wife, Lucy. But there have been plenty of gifts in my life. I, th I don't know how, how I've managed to, to be as blessed as I have been. You need to be patient. Patience is required to heal. I know it, I think, now from this injury. I've had other injuries, by the way. I had a motorbike accident when I was young. Uh, and that the fruits of a tree are dependent on how well you nurture the roots. You know, it's all about not expecting the grass to grow, to, to be there tomorrow. 
No, you must mow the lawn. You must you must treat it. You must you must put work into it, so that you get a nice a nice lawn. Then the, the other things are that one must keep active, celebrate, and appreciate success. Life is a journey. So the other thing is seek help when it's needed, and allow other people to help. It enriches them as well as yourself. Uh, value and appreciate their their efforts at assisting you. Use the stairs, not the lift. And the the little motto that we had is step by step upwards. So, you know, always be looking at improving yourself. Do not procrastinate. Well, I think there are a lot of things that uh, I had wanted to do before I had my, my accident or my incident or my crocodile attack. A lot of things. I should have done them before. Now I can not do them. Do the things. You never know when the line is drawn and you won't be able to do things that you might have wanted to do. Trust people before you doubt them. I know in South Africa, many, and certainly my wife, would be saying no. She was subjected to a um, quite a violent uh, hijacking quite a long time ago, and, and one can understand it. But my message, I trust before doubt. I must say, uh, I have been let down, uh, uh, but I'm not, I'm not changing my approach. Perseverance is the answer to failure. Not the number of times that one falls down, but the number of times that one stands up. You know, it's a common saying. Courage to do the things that are unknown and you know the risk and accept it. I didn't know there was a crocodile in the river. I did not know. If I had known there was a crocodile in the river, would I have taken the risk? Ooh, who knows? I might have taken the risk. I certainly would not have taken it with my granddaughter. You know, I, I do believe that risks are a part of life. You, you don't go through life without taking risks. doesn't matter who you are. Uh, know that however bad the circumstances look, you are in charge of how you react to it. So what I say is for the future, value every heartbeat, use them for the betterment of the world. Earn love by showing love. I, that's my message, at least. And then keep learning. I recorded this interview some time ago, but I still clearly remember getting off that call and going, holy cow, what a human being. I am so grateful to Peter Nottenbelt for sharing his story with me, and I hope that you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Peter is not superhuman. He's just a person like you and me. But it's what he's managed to do with his adversity that is truly remarkable and something we can all draw insight from. Try to catch me howling at the moon. I Lived Through This tells the true stories of ordinary people who've survived unimaginable situations. 
If you'd like to share your story of survival, you can head over to our Facebook page and fill in the form, or you can email livedthroughthis at gmail.com. I Lived Through This releases new stories every second week. In between, you can head over to our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and join in the conversation with our survivors. Thank you for listening. When it rains, it pours. Water's up to my chin. Won't stop fighting to the very